All right. If you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 15 this morning. After spending Advent in the Old Testament, we are now jumping to the New Testament to be reminded of what all of this was looking forward to. If Advent was about waiting, what was it we were waiting on? Colossians 2, 13 to 15 tells us. So this is God's word for us this morning from Colossians 2. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, this is some great news for us this morning. Last Sunday in the Advent Sunday School time, I talked about a word that J.R.R. Tolkien made up, which is why Lord of the Rings was the perfect answer to this kind of story a moment ago. Uh, And that word was eucatastrophe. So it's the Greek prefix eu, which means good, and catastrophe, which means catastrophe. Uh, It is the good catastrophe. And, And Tolkien talks about how the good catastrophe is at the heart of every fairy tale. It is the sudden, unexpected, joyous turn that happens at the end of these fairy tales. And he says of a you catastrophe that it pierces you with a joy that brings tears. It is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. It is the you catastrophe, the joyous, surprise, good catastrophe at the end of fairy tales. Think of different movies or stories where you've seen this happen. Aslan being resurrected in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a you catastrophe. Uh, The eagles saving Frodo and Sam uh, at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Sorry for that, if that was a spoiler. Moana realizing that the lava monster is Tafiti, if you've seen Moana. That is a you catastrophe. Pixar makes its money on you catastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien says a you catastrophe is the mark of a good fairy tale and that we all long for an ending like that. We all want this joyous surprise that pierces us with a joy that is more poignant even than grief. Our passage this morning, these three verses that we're looking at in Colossians 2, describes for us a salvation that satisfies our deepest human longings. That longing we have for a surprise, happy ending is here described for us in joyous detail. And the way the Apostle Paul does that, we're going to look at sort of two things he does in these three verses. Paul tells us what we were, and then Paul tells us what we are. What we were and what we are. 
we see what we were there in verse 13. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead in your trespasses. Trespasses are simply disobedience. Trespasses are when we decide to do what we want, even if we know what we want to do is wrong. In many ways, we live in a culture that celebrates trespass. Uh, We love the idea of living a life without limits where we are free to choose to do whatever we want to do. Lest we think this is only something that happens in our culture, we do this in the church too. Because sometimes we as God's people decide that what God really just wants for us is to be happy. And so we go and do our own thing, sure that God is pleased with it. But the truth of the matter is simply this. There is no flourishing in a life without limits. There is no life even in a life without limits. When we think about God's law, when we think about the things God commands his people to do, we often think that these are just sort of arbitrary constraints that God has put on us and put on our behavior. But the truth of the matter is, God's law is not just an arbitrary set of rules. God's law teaches us how life works best. God's law teaches us who are made in God's image how we were made to live. It teaches us and shows us the shape of true human flourishing. This is why a life of disobedience doesn't actually lead to flourishing and happiness. It leads only to death. We were dead in our trespasses. But Paul says we were also dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. This is a slightly more difficult image to get behind, but uh, as we know, one of the distinctions between God's people in the Old Testament and uh, the nations that surrounded them uh, was circumcision was given to God's people as a mark that they were set apart for holiness and to keep God's law. So when Paul says uncircumcision here, what he's doing is he is just sort of picking up on a common way that the Bible draws a distinction between those who are holy and those who aren't. It is a way of talking about cleanness versus uncleanness and purity versus impurity. So when Paul says uncircumcision, he is saying that sin is not just the bad stuff we do, But we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh because it's also the fact that our desires are twisted. That we have distorted loves and distorted desires. We have an unpure, impure hearts. We were dead in the impurity of our hearts is the picture here that Paul is painting. So sin is not just the bad stuff we do, it's the fact that we want and love the wrong things as well. Our wanting is broken. And this means that we don't just want bad things, although sometimes we do, sometimes we do want bad things, but part of the way our wanting is broken is we want good things in a bad way. In fact, for Christians and for those who are seeking to follow Jesus, that is frequently the way this looks for us. 
take good things. Think of some good things in your life. Maybe that's um, success at work. Uh, maybe that is uh, financial comfort. Uh, maybe it is uh, good grades if you're in school. Maybe it's having relationships or children or, or friends. These good things that God has given, when we take those good things and we make them ultimate things, we make them the very grounds of our peace and our comfort and our security, bad things happen. If you are looking to your children to give you ultimate meaning and comfort and purpose and security, you will crush them with the weight of your expectations, which they will never meet, and your life will be a series of deaths in the process. The uncircumcision of our flesh is not just wanting bad things, but wanting good things in the wrong way. And what Paul says is what we were is we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And again, we were dead. We weren't sick. We weren't wounded. We weren't slow. We weren't weak. We were dead. But now we are alive. That's the, the switch that gets thrown here in this passage. We were dead, but now we are alive. He, there's three things we see in this passage that Paul tells us we are. Verse 13 tells us we're alive. Verses 13 and 14 tell us we are forgiven. And verse 15 tells us we are free. Uh, look at verse 13. Uh, Paul says, not only uh, were we dead, he says... God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God has forgiven us all of the wrong things that we've done. How does he do that? Verse 14 tells us, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt that is referenced there in verse 14 uh, in the Greek actually connotes something like a, like a handwritten IOU. Uh, and that would be almost a note like this so that sort of says, I owe God obedience to his will, signed mankind, like human beings. I owe God obedience to his will. This record of debt reminds us that all of us are without excuse. Being human means that you were created by God. Being human means that you are made in the image of God, and thus being human means being held to the standards of your creator. That's just part of the deal. God made us. God decides what we do. And so this record of debt is a requirement that hangs over our heads with its legal demands. As those made in God's image, we owe God full and perfect obedience at all times and in all situations, and we owe him restitution for when we blow it. We owe him full obedience and restitution for all of our past wrongs. But what Paul says to us is that that record of debt that list of all the places we've bloated along with our obligation to obey, that record of debt has been set aside. 
It has been nailed to the cross. It has been discarded. And the reason is, is that our debt has been paid in full. Our debt is paid in full. The perfect obedience and the restitution for past wrongs was paid in full on the cross. And friends, that's what Jesus did. John Stott, uh, the great uh, theologian and pastor, put it this way. He says, God frees us from bankruptcy by paying our debts on Christ's cross and then by destroying the document on which the debt was recorded. That's the picture here. God has paid our debts for us on the cross of Jesus and then destroyed the document on which the debt was recorded, which is just another way of saying we are forgiven because of Christ. But there's more at work here. Because verse 15 tells us that that's not all the cross did. Verse 15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. What this means is on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He triumphed over the spiritual forces that would use our debt to God to oppress us and to crush us. And those spiritual forces are the voices that tell us we will never be enough. They are the voices that continue to whisper in your ear that you will never measure up and that God does not want you to be happy and that he is a harsh taskmaster and judge and you are ultimately worthless. What what Paul is telling us here is that those forces, those voices that whisper those things in our ears again and again have been defeated. But not only have they been defeated, they have been put to open shame, which means being revealed for what they truly are. The idea of open shame in the ancient world was kind of interesting because it basically means being laid bare in public. When I was growing up, there was a phenomenon. I don't know if the kids still do this. Uh, If they don't, parents, I'm sorry for saying this. Uh, we called it getting pantsed. Getting pantsed was when you would be in public and someone would come up behind you and pull down your pants. Uh, it was, like say for instance, if that happened to you in front of, I don't know, the girls cross country team at T.C. Robertson High School, <laughs> it was open shame. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. Uh, I don't know if they still call it that or if it still happens. It shouldn't happen. Kids, do not do that. That's the picture here. The the picture here is that Jesus puts the forces of darkness that are opposed to Christ and his rule, he puts them to open shame. They are revealed to be wicked and evil and small and petty. He pants, I don't even know the tense on that. That's what he did on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame, which means we're not only forgiven of our debt, but we are free from the spiritual forces that would use our debt to remind us of it. Jesus is saying, no more, none of that. I have paid it all. 
And what this means is, in the words of one theologian, is that on the cross of Jesus, the question of your worth is definitively settled. The question of your worth is definitively settled. The cross is the place that you can see what you are worth to God. The cross is the place he poured out his wrath on his son so that you can have life. The cross is the place where your debts were paid and the voices of those that would remind you of those debts are silenced. The voices that tell you you are unlovely or unlovable or worthless on the cross are exposed as liars and are silenced because the cross reminds you that you are of incomparable worth to God. And friends, what this means for your day-to-day, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour life is simply this. No one is keeping score. No one is keeping score on your life. No one is counting your wins and your losses. No one is counting your successes and your failures, and no one is counting your good deeds or your sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we have here in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, tells you that it is wrong for you to think you will earn anything from God. The gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is not opposed to you seeking to walk in holiness and faithfulness and goodness, but the gospel is absolutely opposed to earning. You do not earn anything. God does everything. Your debts are all paid. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Why am I preaching this passage on the day after Christmas? You remember Tolkien thinking about you catastrophe. Well, he says further that the incarnation is the you catastrophe of human history. That it is unexpected, this unexpected joy that God himself would take on a human nature and enter into the story in order to fix the mess. The incarnation is the good news you never could have expected. But Tolkien also says, the resurrection is the catastrophe of the story of the incarnation. It's not just that God took on human nature and entered into the world to redeem people. It's that death itself couldn't hold him. Death itself was undone. Death itself worked backwards because of all Christ had done. Which means that the resurrection of Jesus is the unexpected, sudden, miraculous grace. It's a joyous turn. The resurrection ought to pierce our hearts with a joy that brings tears. Because the gospel is the true fairy tale. Everything we love about these other stories, everything that brings tears to our eyes, everything about those tales is true and deeper than true. In the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is better news than we ever could have hoped for. The gospel is, in fact, everything that we long for. Think of it again, friends. A holy God created a people in his own image. 
We rebelled against him. We sinned against this God who made us and gave us everything. And God tells us that the answer to that sin is not just us being better, but God himself taking on flesh and fulfilling all the requirements of the law and dying a death that we all deserve as lawbreakers and debtors. And then not even staying dead, but being raised to life again in triumph over sin and death and the rulers and the authorities. Paul is telling us in these verses that we were dead, but now in Christ we are alive and forgiven and free. And in the words of one pastor, what this means is that in Christ, your long-term worst-case scenario is resurrection and eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the gospel is the true fairy tale. That all of the things we long for, that all of the stories that make us weep are pointing us to the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf. He lived a life we could not live. He died a death we could not die. And he rose again in triumph over sin and death and the rulers and the authorities. Father, we thank you that though we were dead, now in Christ we are made alive. We are forgiven and we are free. Father, help us live like that's true. Help us to believe again that no one is keeping score, that all of our debts are paid. Help us to believe again that the question of our worth has been definitively settled and answered and we are reminded of the lengths to which you went to redeem us, that we might live with you forever. Father, we pray now as we come to your table that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf. Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.